past mercies are pleas for present help. Prayerful dependence upon God in distress magnifies God's ability to deliver you from hateful enemies and harmful expressions of emotion. All the injustices that kept others from true worship. Jesus is never angry when he is personally offended, which is ironic because he would be just in being angry when he was personally offended because he's God. God's electing grace in calling us to be his people is a comfort and a balm to us because the same God who called us into a relationship with him is the one who's going to see us through. Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Presbyterian Church weekly podcast. We're glad you joined us. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. Why are the Psalms called Psalms? If you're a note taker, you're going to want to pull out a pen. The title of the Psalms in the original Hebrew is Tachalim, which means the songs of praise. It means praise songs. And these were the songs that were written for the ancient choirs in Israel to sing in corporate worship. There are 150 poems that are put together, and they are written all throughout Israel's history. And they were put together in particular orders by the early scribes in order for us to help grow as God's people in prayer. The term psalms comes from the, um, the Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word, which is mizmor, that occurs 57 times in the psalms. It means a song accompanied by a guitar or by a stringed instrument of some sort. That's what the word mizmor in Hebrew means. And, and when in Egypt, they wanted to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek for the library in Alexandria. That's something called the Septuagint. They translated it all into Greek. And when they did that, they used a Greek term, psalmoi. And that's the Greek term that is closest to mizmor. And if you, all of us speak English, and you can hear the word psalm out of that. Latin was psalmi, and the English became the psalms. And so that's where we get the term the Psalms, it just means songs of praise. That's what the term means. But the Psalms are more than just a hymn book. The Psalms are a prayer book. They are a journal. They are a counseling manual for your heart. And God gave Jesus through the comfort of the Psalms. Augustine prayed the Psalms as he died, and so also did Jesus, far more importantly. And we've talked about this in the past, in the summers, but there's a way to exercise the Psalms in your life. And so the Psalms are teaching us common ways to pray. And so we've used this little exercise mnemonic in the past. You pray in, in meditation, the Psalms. You pray down in repentance. You pray out in sorrow. You pray in, in meditation. You pray down in repentance. You pray out in sorrow. You pray up in petition. And you pray around in thanksgiving and adoration. So you pray in, in meditation. You pray down in repentance. You pray out in sorrow. You pray 
up and petition, and you pray around in adoration and thanksgiving. It's the exercise of praying the Psalms. And so the Psalms go deep to the heart of our own experience, even as they did for Jesus. So if you're willing and able, we'll stand together and let's read Psalm 4. There is a scribal notation that says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. And then Psalm 4 begins. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word is true and it stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Past mercies are pleas for present help. The point of Psalm 4 is this, that prayerful dependence upon God in distress magnifies God's ability to deliver you from hateful enemies and harmful expressions of emotion. Past mercies are pleas for present help. And our prayerful dependence upon God in distress magnifies God's ability to deliver us from hateful enemies and harmful emotions. That is Psalm 4 in a nutshell. But of course, David says it's so much better. So let's jump in. In this Psalm of David, which he wrote in the evening when he was on the run from his son Absalom, something that you can read at home in the order of worship for the home, you can read 2 Samuel 13 through 15 for the background of the psalm. David shows us three movements of his own experience, writing the psalm in the evening before he is himself to go to bed, on the run from Absalom, his son, and his men who sought his life. And you see in this psalm, David's soul dependence, David's Soul's cry for justice and David's soul confidence in the Lord. His soul dependence, his soul's cry for justice, and his only, his soul confidence in the Lord. One commentator, Eugene Peterson, said, This psalm teaches not so much about David's life, though it does, but it is actually a call to practice the presence of God in your own life. And so let's use David's life as a case study to learn how we too can practice the presence of God in our own life as we look to God in dependence and magnify his ability to deliver us from the situations that plague us 
now. So first, David's soul dependence. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. These, these are not the words of scripture, as I mentioned. These are scribal notations that were written to place this psalm in the context of ancient worship of Israel. And so the words of David begin in verse 1. And Psalm 4 is an evening prayer. Notice that he says in verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. It sounds as though this is a psalm that he's writing just before he goes to bed. If you compare it to Psalm 3 verse 5, it says, I will lay down, I laid down and I slept and I woke again for the Lord sustained me. In Psalm 3, which is the first prayer in the Psalter, it sounds like David just woke up. And then in Psalm 4, it sounds like he's about to go to bed. And if you read Psalm 5, it sounds like he just woke up. So morning prayer, evening prayer, morning prayer. What's going on here? The Jewish prayer masters knew to put these psalms in an order to help you with your prayer life. In fact, Thomas Cramner in the 16th century, when he was trying to teach all of England how to pray through the Book of Common Prayer, he put Psalm 4 as the beginning prayer of the evening series of prayers to pray during a prayer time called Compline, early evening prayer. Just before you go to bed, you are to pray Psalm 4. And people have been praying this prayer before bed for years and years and years. So it's an early evening prayer. And it's a specific kind of prayer. It's an individual lament. Laments, as I tried to explain to my kiddos, laments are prayers of, <laughs> that's what laments are. They're prayers of, God, I just need you. Sometimes they're, my back is up against a wall. Sometimes there are fiery uh, uh, arrows coming at me. Sometimes they're just, blah, I just don't know what to pray. And there's 42 of these in the Psalms, and 30 of those are individual prayers of lament, where David or Asaph or even Moses is crying out and saying, Lord, help me in the midst of my distress. So it is an evening prayer, and it's a particular kind of prayer. It's a prayer of lament, where David is calling God to meet him amidst all of the paralyzing fear of running from his own son, Absalom, who was trying to take his life and take his kingdom. And I don't know when you have last been paralyzed with fear. I know most, most of your stories, and I know that some of you in this room right now are paralyzed with fear. And Psalm 4 is an amazing prayer to pray before you go to bed at night because it is when our back is up against a wall that when we are utterly dependent upon the Lord, he magnifies his ability to deliver you, maybe from hateful enemies or harmful expressions of emotion as he did David in this psalm, but certainly from whatever situation you're in, he wants to remind you of his tenderness and care. So let's see how he does this in David's life. Notice in this case study of David, verse one sets the stage. Past mercies are a plea for present help. And he says, answer me when I call O oh God of my righteousness. 
David is just praying to the Lord extemporaneously. Nowhere else in the Bible is God called God of my righteousness. David is just searching for words to say. In Hebrew, when it says, you have given me relief when I was in distress, it is the image of having your back up against a wall and coming out into open space. David had his back up against a wall or probably in the cave of rocky crags somewhere in the Judean wilderness running from Absalom. And he says, Lord, you have heard me in my distress. Immediately what David teaches us is that when we pray to the Lord and when we feel like our backs are up against a wall, David says, look back upon your life on how the Lord has blessed you in the past. Look at his past mercies and how they are a plea for present help. Notice when David is on the run, he says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. I mean, David could have said, God help me, my son is trying to kill me. And immediately, he thinks about how the Lord is faithful to him in delivering him from Goliath, and helping him conquer the Philistines, and his coronation as king, and subduing the Amorites, and being able to rule years peacefully, of the covenant promise that was given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that there will never cease to be a son on your throne, speaking, of course, of Jesus. I mean, David immediately recalls all those past mercies in his life. And so if you are here and you're like, you feel like your back is up against a wall, take a cue from David and reflect upon all of God's past mercies in your life. How many of you know the song, Be Thou My Vision? Do you know there's that, there's that funny word in that song, here I raise my Ebenezer. I used to think that like Ebenezer Scrooge was being raised up. Like what does, what does the, Ebenezer is, is building a monument in praise of past mercies. So when you feel like your back is up against a wall, friends, Find those Ebenezers in your life, those times when God was amazingly faithful to you, and recount those, as David does at the very beginning of his prayer. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Past relief from distress. In verse 2, David appeals to God as the righteous one who delivered him from his former distresses, and he was a present grace in prayer. The background, as I mentioned, is in 2 Samuel, verses 13 on through verse, uh, chapter 18. And King David reigned over Judah from Hebron for the first seven years of his reign. And in Hebron, David had six sons. He has this profound experience of peace. And after seven years, he moves the capital to Jerusalem after Saul's son, Ithbosheth, who ruled temporarily, vacates Jerusalem. David moves in. And he experienced these years of profound peace. And he has sons, Amnon and Absalom. He's a daughter, Tamar, among other children. And one tragic day, Amnon hurts his sister, Tamar. Some of you know that story. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 13. And Absalom is so mad that one of his brothers hurt his sister. That Absalom sets out to kill Amnon. And, and, and David knows this, and David has to hold Absalom back. And, and, and Ab Absalom's trying to get David to send Amnon out in, in, in all these different ways. And finally, Absalom basically gets his brother at a, a party as they're sheep shearing. And 
when he's married with wine, it says, Absalom strikes him down and kills him. And so here's David in this profound season of peace, and all of a sudden his family begins to just come unglued. A brother who hurts a sister, and then a brother who kills a brother. And while the kingdom looked great, if you lived in Jerusalem at the time, inside the royal family was destroying itself. And David feels all of that weight as the father of that family. When after Amnon is killed, Absalom takes off and he goes to the king of Geshur and he lives there for three years. And then Joab comes and invites him back. David says, go find Absalom. Joab brings him back. And, and when he comes to the, to, the, to the king again, David won't see him. He makes him wait in Jerusalem for two years. You think, you think your doctor's wait was a long time. You, you think your time to meet with your mom and dad was a long time if you've come to reconcile with him. David makes him wait for two years and won't even see his son. And then when Absalom finally comes over those two years, bitterness and strife has stirred in his heart as he's watched his father make what he thinks are poor decisions and how he can rule over the kingdom better. And so when Absalom finally comes into David's presence, David kisses his son. And Absalom just kisses it away. He fakes repentance in his father's presence. His heart had turned away from his father. And he goes and he starts to judge and rule at the gate. And he tells people, oh, well, this is what my father did, but this is how I would handle that. And he begins to turn the nation against King David. And then at one point, Absalom gathers men. And when he gathers these men, he rallies them back in his hometown of Hebron. And he enamors them by his good looks and his words of folly. And he says, let's go and take the kingdom. And so they head back to Jerusalem and David catches wind of this. And David with his men, the king of Israel knows how angry and how resourceful his son has become that David has to go on the run. And here's David on the run in the evening before he is going to bed and he's writing this psalm. David is asking for present grace in prayer and he is pulling in his Ebenezer's, his past examples of God's faithfulness to him. And he's saying, God, do it again. God, do it again. You are my righteousness. Find rest, O my soul, and you alone. He says in Psalm 62, you are my salvation and my rock. The kingdom is not my rock. You are my rock. And then in verses two to three, David moves into a second movement and he cries out for justice. You can hear David's anguish. Oh Lord, or, oh men, how long will you blaspheme my reputation and my name? How long will you turn my shame or my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after falsehood? How long will you love vain words and will you seek after lies? And then David says, Salah. Whether that was written into the poem or the music that David wrote or that was a Jewish edition later, we don't know. But what we do know is that when you see the word Salah, it means pause, rest. And just think about the words that you just read. And David reflects on how people love vanity and they seek after falsehood. They make it their identity. And then notice the contrast in verse three, but whenever you see a contrast, a but, you always circle it and say, what is he contrasting? But against the vanity and the falsehood of the world, but know 
something you have to get into your head, that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Now, this is so interesting to me because David is appealing to the doctrine of sovereign election to provide comfort for him on the run, in the wilderness, before he's going to bed at night. Which of us would have expected that? And he's saying that God's electing grace in calling us to be his people is a comfort and a balm to us because the same God who called us into a relationship with him is the one who's going to see us through. He's going to do it. The doctrine of election is the idea that God's complete salvation rests in his hands, not in ours. Election is the guarantee of a complete salvation because the promise is God's. He chose us, and certainly he's going to hear our prayers. God called David from among Jesse's sons. God coronated David. God entered into a relationship with David, not because of David's holiness. He was the smallest and puniest of Jesse's sons but because of God's faithfulness to his covenant promise that he would be true to his character and he would redeem a people for himself. The same mechanism is true in your life. That God has called you out of Collinsville or Skytook or Tulsa. He's called you out of whatever was going on in your world and he has said, you're mine. I love you. And if you're here today and you do not know Jesus personally, he is calling you even through the sound of my voice saying, believe Believe through the vanity and the falsehoods of the world that I am the one who can cover your sin and only I can do it. Believe in that and come and rush away from the darkened corner which you find yourself into the open spaces of Psalm chapter 4. Spurgeon once said, O beloved, when you were on your knees, the fact of your being set apart as God's own peculiar treasure should give you courage to inspire you with fervency and faith. The doctrine of election is not meant to be a source of theological division amongst the church. It is to be a medicine and a balm for the people of God to look back and say, God is faithful to his covenant promises even when I'm not. He will see you through. It is a comforting doctrine, and David appeals to it here in verse chapter 3. Notice that David talks about the godly one. God has called David the godly one. David certainly sinned. He knew that. David certainly wasn't perfect. Of course he knew that. But God has called him his godly one as a picture and a shadow of the true and greater David. The only truly godly one. Jesus. Who came when his back was against the wall And when he was put on that cross, he himself didn't go out into the open space, but he provided a way through his blood so that you could go out and be freed from your sin. And you could be delivered from what enemies painfully pursued you. And notice the last movement of the psalm in verse 4. David switches and he begins to say, this is my soul confidence. My soul confidence is in the Lord, even amidst all these emotions that I feel. 
He starts out with anger. Be angry and do not sin. This should be taken as a conditional sentence in Hebrew, which means if you feel angry at those who slander you, which you may well do, nevertheless, do not sin by seeking revenge against them. Good anger is when you're angry because God's name or his ways are devalued or profaned. And the Bible assumes that there is such a thing as good anger, righteous indignation. Jesus demonstrated it, of course, in his own life. Good anger is when we are angry because God's name or his ways are devalued. And when we have good anger, David teaches us that the way to not sin is to ponder them in your hearts, to not retaliate on your beds and be silent, to reflect, to go to the Lord in prayer. And then again, it says salah. It's like just chew on that for a second. When you're angry, reflect, pray, slow down. Why does he, do, why does he say that? Because we all know from our own experience that the vast majority of our anger is not good anger. And angry people, if you know them, are often blind to their own anger, aren't they? This is very frightening. They are blind. All who hate, uh, it says in 1 John chapter 2, are blind to their hatred. And bad, angry people are always sure that the object of their anger and not themselves is their problem, right? Right? And generally, the more extreme someone's problem with anger is, the more confident they are of their righteousness and more unaware they are of both their anger's sinful roots and the destructive disposition and pathway that it has in the life of their own family. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you can mentally think, how many of you struggle with anger? Anger is like, anger is like the it just surprises you when you get angry. You don't really know you have an anger problem until, boom, you just explode one day and you're like, I do not know where that came from. Angry people are often blind to their anger. Anger is a partnership with the devil, it says. It is specifically linked to Satan in the Bible. It has is it a demonic contract that Satan uses to enslave and perpetuate his dominion over people and families. Notice how defensive people are in their posturing when they're anger. James identifies anger as demonic, James chapter 3. And, James, you know, as Lydia and, and Jeremy read earlier, you know, Paul even says that don't give in to the opportunity of the devil. And then they talk about being angry and not sinning. Listen, anger has many faces. Blindness is always there to overtake us. We should be alert to the disguises of our anger. Sometimes our anger comes across as backbiting and passive aggressiveness. Sometimes it comes as violence. Sometimes it comes as abuse. Anger has many faces. And Jesus, Jesus was angry, but always with the good anger, not with the bad anger. Jesus was never angry over personal offenses. Watch Jesus as he's being tested and insulted by the religious leaders. The amount of self-control your Savior has is unbelievable. All the injustices that kept others from true worship. Jesus is never angry when he is personally offended, which is ironic because he would be just in being angry when he was personally offended because he's God. And he's teaching us how not to take offense when we are personally insulted. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. 
It doesn't mean that when we suffer injustices that we should not at times even pursue legal action against those. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying that Jesus himself is our example, that he refused to be angry at personal offenses. And the last thing I'll just mention is that your heavenly father is jealous for angry people. And so if you struggle with anger, I want you to know that your savior is after you and he loves you. And he is jealous for you. That is, he wants to take you in all of your anger and all of your vitriol and all of your... He wants you to be his. He is not intimidated by your anger. There's a stream of jealousy that is harmful when it leads to greed and violence. And there's a stream of mercy and jealousy that is beautiful when the Lord pursues you, even amidst the anger that you feel. You think David wasn't angry? You think Jesus wasn't angry, but he held back. And here David, as a picture of our Savior, is saying, oh, Father, protect me in my distress. I will lay down before I go to bed, and I will be silent before you, even though everything in me rages. There are, there's power in that. Jesus yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, James 4, 5 says. And so if you're here and you're struggling with your anger, oh, would you hear your father's voice say to you, I love people who are angry. I love people who are sinful because you're not righteous because of what you do. You're righteous because I have provided everything needed for you to have a relationship with me. Because ultimately I will be the one that delivers justice to the earth. And I will accomplish what I have set out to do. He moves on from anger and then he begins to ponder hopelessness. Some will say, who will show us any good? What good is there in the world? And David says, no, I will not listen to that. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Remind us that there is a story too good to be untrue. David says, you put more joy in my heart than the annual pilgrimage feasts when the grain and the wine abound more than all the religious festivals. Father, you have put more joy in my heart because you have called me to be your child. Is that the cry of your heart too? And then in peace, I will lie down and I will sleep. Not just lie down, but also sleep. Because for you alone, O oh Lord, you make me dwell in safety. You will secure me. If you use the QR code on the back of your bulletin, there is an um, a order of worship for the home that we're going to put up every week this summer. And there is a song in there that I encourage you to listen to. It's an almost word-for-word -word rendition of Psalm chapter 4. And as I shared it with some people at the church this week, some, one person said, oh yeah, we've heard that song before and we sometimes listen to it before bed. It's a wonderful song to listen to before you go to bed. If you just take a picture with your phone, it'll take you to the website where you can read those family devotionals. And I encourage you this summer to take one more step in your discipleship as a family and to reflect upon the message that was preached the previous Sunday and to ask those questions together, to read or sing a song that was sung in worship and to begin to talk and develop the habit over the summer as we travel. Many of us are going to be gone. And practice entering into worship as a family. Fathers, we're trying to make it as easy for you as possible. Lead your family. Step up to the plate. If there's not a father in the house, then mothers or guardians, step up to the plate and let's lead our children into thinking the thoughts after the Lord 
as we reflect in the home, not just at Trinity, about the amazing good news of the gospel. Because here is David's joy amidst his very distressing circumstance. And he expresses this tremendous confidence in this psalm that even when our backs are up against the wall in this individual lament, Lord, you are the one who makes me dwell down in safety so that we could be able to sing as the old hymn says, thus with my thoughts composed to peace, I'll give mine eyes to sleep and thy hand in safety keeps my days and will my slumbers keep. Morning prayer, evening prayer. The rhythm of prayerful living life with your Heavenly Father who cares for you even when your back is up against the wall. Past mercies are a plea for present helps. Our dependence upon God in prayer magnifies His ability to deliver us from hateful enemies and from harmful emotions. And the Psalms, beginning with Psalm 4, is a counseling manual to help you begin to process that glorious good news. Amen. Look to your Savior.